Wow. Thanks, boys, for bringing us our Bible reading today. It was a long one, so sorry about that. But you all did a really great job. Well, hello, guys. How are we all? Excellent. Hope you've all had a great week and are as, as excited as me to jump back into the story of Jonah. Oh, but before we start, I better put these on. Hey, what's the deal with optometrists? No, don't worry. I'm not going to make you sit through my stupid story again. Now, if you've got no idea what I'm talking about, today is our second instalment on our series through the book of Jonah. And if you missed last week, I'd encourage you to jump on Spotify or YouTube and check out week one, where you'll get my stupid story about optometrists. But more importantly, last week, we spent a whole week unpacking the whole backstory and setting of the, book and jo- of the book of Jonah, which is all critically important if we are going to fully grasp what the author is trying to convey. As we try to look afresh at this brilliant story and put aside the bland, simplified and censored versions of this story we may have read in children's literature or grown up with. So this week, we're not going to jump around so much. We're going to zoom right in on chapters one and two of Jonah. So just a super quick quick recap. Jonah is found within our Hebrew Bibles, the Old Testament, within the books of the prophets. But Jonah is totally unique because unlike all the other books of the prophets, instead of getting a collection of that prophet's words, we get a narrative story about Jonah. And not only that, Jonah is totally unique through the style in which it's written. It's almost like a comic book. Everything is extreme and over the top as the author uses satire, sarcasm and humour brilliantly to bring this story to life. Okay, so let's open up our Bibles together again and get back into this amazing story. Jonah, chapter 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Now remember, Lord in all caps means Yahweh, God's personal name. And Jonah, son of Amittai, means dove, son of faithfulness. And of course, what a joke, because he's the most faithless character in this entire story. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up against me. Of what empire is this great city of Nineveh the capital? The ancient Assyrians, the most brutal world empire the world had yet seen. Israel's most hated enemy. But what does innocent son of faithfulness do? But Jonah ran away from Yahweh and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from, the, from Yahweh. So we checked out the map last week. Jonah should be headed east for Iraq. Instead, he heads as far west as he could possibly go, to Spain. So obviously, there's something deeply troubling going on with our man Jonah here. This prophet, this man of God, is now running from Yahweh and doesn't want anything to do with God or this mission God is sending him on. But notice, what's God doing here? He isn't just kicking back, not caring about what's happening in his world. He notices 
and reacts to the injustice of the Assyrians. He gets involved and sends his messenger, Jonah, to go and do something about this wickedness, to go and confront the Assyrians, to put a stop to the horrors they are committing and give them an opportunity to turn and find a different way of life through God's love and grace. Hmm. God's using Jonah, an Israelite, a son of Abraham, to bring blessing and a way back to a nation. Of course God is doing this. This is the whole reason God set up the covenant with Abraham in the first place. Not because he liked Abraham and his descendants, the Israelites, more than anyone else, but because God promised way back in Genesis chapter 12 that it would be through this guy and these people that God would bring his blessing and restoration to all the nations. Now, we may think to ourselves, why doesn't God just go to Nineveh himself and show up personally in a thundercloud or something? That would be so much more efficient. But if we actually read the Bible, we find that God hardly ever acts in this way. In the vast majority of cases, God chooses to work, confront evil, and bring about his grace and restoration through people, through his people, his followers, people just like you and me. Hmm. So whatever God is doing in the world, efficiency isn't God's highest priority. But working through humans is the way forward. Hmm. In which direction do we tend to travel? East or west? Okay, back to Jonah, verse 4. Then Yahweh sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. The comic book element really comes out here. It's hidden a bit in our English translations, but from my, from my research in Hebrew, it's almost like the ship itself is a character. And it's actually pondering whether to break up or not. Should I stay together? Hmm, I don't know. These waves are pretty big. Verse 5. All the sailors were afraid and each cried out to his own God. And they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. Oh no, it's a lost mission for them now. There goes their livelihood. I'm pretty sure business insurance hasn't been invented yet. Even if they survive the storm, they may be facing financial ruin now. But Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us and we will not perish. I love this line, don't you? Because... I think God most definitely has already taken notice of them. In fact, God noticing Jonah is the whole reason they all find themselves fighting for their lives in this storm. So let's picture this scene. This huge storm comes, up, comes upon the sea and the sailors, they're just immediately on it. They recognize straight away this is no ordinary storm. There's something supernatural about this storm. And they would know they're professional sailors for crying out loud. I'm tipping they've seen a storm or two before. 
but they recognize this storm is the work of a god. So they do what any pagan polytheistic sailor would do. Pagan, meaning these guys belong to another nation. They weren't Israelites. And polytheistic is a big fancy word that simply means these sailors believed in many different gods. So they desperately start praying to all these different gods. Desperately, desperately trying to find the right one. The one that's responsible for this huge storm. You see, they believe there are a whole heap of gods that they have to try and keep happy because if they just so happen to tick one of them off, a god or gods could really bring a storm like this upon them. They're just fully aware and attentive to the fact that their lives are at stake here. But in stark contrast, where's our faithful man of God, Jonah? He's in the bottom of the ship, asleep. Mentally, physically, and most definitely, spiritually. Totally tuned out. Totally unaware of the situation he finds himself in. But not only that, he's totally tuned out to the destruction he is causing in the lives of all those people around him. It even takes one of these pagan polytheistic sailors the captain, to go down and try and slap Jonah awake to get him to do what? To do something as simple as pray to his God. Now, if we really think about it, this scene right here is just so profound and so totally contradictory to the culture we find ourselves living in today. You see, our culture will tell us that our decisions are exactly that. They're our decisions, and that they only affect us, and my decisions are none of your business. And that they only affect us. Sorry. And who are you to tell someone else how they should live their life? Our culture will tell us, as long as no one gets hurt, and all those involved are consenting adults, you can do whatever you want with your life. But what the Bible says through passages just like this one, is that this way of thinking is just utterly ridiculous and totally wrong. You see, what have the sailors done wrong? What bad decision have they made that they find themselves in this position where they've just lost their livelihood and now they're fighting for their lives? Other than letting this moron Jonah onto their boat, they haven't done anything wrong. It's Jonah and his stupid decisions which have caused this hardship and destruction in the sailors' lives. Wow. Could it be that we are facing one of life's storms because of someone else's stupid decisions? Or could it even be that we are the cause of hardship and destruction in other people's lives living around us? when we choose to run from God and make stupid, self-centered decisions. Hmm. Maybe a change of direction is required. Okay, back to the passage, verse 7. Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, Tell us, 
Who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? So this is weird. The Bible has casting lots, dice rolling in it. Nah, it's not that weird. We do this even today. We just don't call it casting lots anymore. We call it rock, paper, scissors. So Jonah and the sailors just had a rock off. And wouldn't you know it? Jonah goes rock and all the sailors go paper. How do I know Jonah goes rock? Oh, that's easy. Because he's just about to sink, just like one. No, of course that's ridiculous. But just imagine the scene right here. I'm picturing Jonah, this weedy little scroll worm prophet guy, yawning and rubbing his eyes, surrounded by these huge muscle-bulging Viking-type dudes. These guys spend their days either, either lifting heavy cargo on and off their boat or at the oars rowing through storms. And it's because of this guy, Jonah, that they've just lost all of their money and are about to lose their boat and even their lives. So they're just firing questions at Jonah. He better come up with something good, something really good. So Jonah replies, verse 9. Oh, I am a Hebrew, and I worship Yahweh, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. What? I worship, or in some of our translations we might have, I fear the Lord? Have you ever, in your entire life, heard a bigger line of absolute religious verbal diarrhea? We should be totally scandalized when we hear this. Oh, I fear and worship Yahweh. No, you most certainly do not, Jonah. You idiot. You don't fear or worship God at all. Oh, no. Not again. It's only verse 9. And the author has just done it again. You see, the second we see ourselves as superior to Jonah, the author has just pivoted the spotlight once again, straight unto us. You can almost hear him saying here, Oh, really? You're superior to Jonah, are you? Yeah, there's never been an occasion in your life where what you say you believe doesn't quite line up with how you actually act. Boy, this story really packs a punch, doesn't it? But can you just imagine the looks on the sailors' faces right now? So you worship Yahweh, your God who created the sea. And you thought it would be a bright idea to run away from him on our boat? No wonder they respond the way that they do in verse 10. This terrified them. And they asked, what have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. Don't you just love this line? The author whispers in our ear right here. He's taking us back to the scene on the port. Now, you'll get this if you've ever been overseas before. It's the little immigration card that you have to fill out. So Jonah, he's got his pen out and he's filling in, you know, name, passport number, then reasons for travel. Business? Nah, definitely not. Vacation? Not really. 
Box three, running away from Yahweh, your God who made the land and the sea. Yeah, sweet, that's me, tick. Now, obviously, that's ridiculous. Pens weren't invented yet. But again, how profound is this scene right here? You've got the sailors, these guys who don't know or follow Yahweh at all, but they can just see so clearly the hypocrisy in Jonah's life that there is just no correlation at all between what Jonah says he believes and how he actually acts. What an ancient, irrelevant text. As if, as if this would ever happen in our culture today. No, tragically, it's often the people who have no relationship with God who are the first to pick up on the deep contradictions in the lives of those who say that they do. And things are only going to get worse. Verse 11. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, what should we do to make the sea calm down for us? Hmm. Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know it's my fault. This great storm has come upon you. Wow, finally, Jonah is waking up. He has finally woken up to the fact that it's his stupid decisions which have caused all this hardship in all of their lives. And he's finally repenting and turning back towards God. Hmm, well, maybe. Or could it be that through this response, he's actually doubling down? He's actually further hardening his heart? It's not like Jonah apologizes or even speaks to Yahweh about this rash decision. And by getting thrown overboard in a storm, wouldn't this just ensure that Jonah couldn't go to Nineveh and give the Assyrians a chance to find God's grace? Hmm, we don't know. The author just leaves us to ponder that one. Maybe we'll find out later in the story. Let's continue. Verse 13. Instead, the sailors did their best to row back to land. The sailors obviously think this is a bad idea, but they couldn't for the sea grew even wilder than before. They cried to Yahweh, O oh Lord, please do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, O oh Lord, have done as you please. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared Yahweh. And they offered a sacrifice to Yahweh and made vows to him. Wow, what a, what a radical transformation. Back in verse 5, who do these pagan sailors cry out to? All these other gods. Now what's happened? These sailors have had an encounter with Yahweh, this God who made the sea and the land through the very imperfect witness of Jonah. But God is not limited by Jonah's imperfect witness. Through Jonah, these sailors have come to put their trust in Yahweh. They have chosen to turn and head in the opposite direction. And how ironic is this? This is the first prayer offered to Yahweh in this whole story. 
And who does it come from? Not this prophet man of God, but these pagan former polytheistic sailors. You see, Jonah will tell you he fears Yahweh, but now it's the sailors who actually greatly fear Yahweh. In times of utter desperation and loss in our lives, which way do we tend to head? West, away from God, like Jonah, or east, towards God, like these pagan sailors. But it gets even better. We're told the sailors offer sacrifices and make vows to the Lord. Okay, so this is one of these moments we need to put ourselves once again into the shoes of the author's intended audience to really grasp what's being said right here. Because the author just expects we know the Torah, the first five books of our Bible, back to front. Have you read Leviticus lately? It's a great read. How do you make an offering sacrifice to God? If you're burning up a couple of goats or a whole cow, you're going to need a pretty big fire. Are you doing this on the deck of your wooden boat? No, of course not. Implied here, these sailors make it back to land, find a temple dedicated to the worship of Yahweh, offer their sacrifice and make vows to give their lives to follow Yahweh after after this encounter with the true creator God. But Jonah totally misses out. He misses out on seeing this amazing act of God's grace and the transformation of these sailors' lives. He's so tuned out and so self-absorbed, he's dead. He's sinking to the bottom of the sea, just like that rock. Verse 17. But the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was inside the fish for three days and three nights. Oh no, sucks to be Jonah right now. As if drowning wasn't bad enough, now he's eaten by a fish. Could be a great white shark even. Now, if we were dealing with any other god, this would be it for Jonah. But remember, this is Yahweh, the god who created the land and the sea and all the fishes in it. And somehow, from inside the fish, Jonah, he's not dead. He's composing a beautiful poetic prayer to the Lord of repentance from the oxygenless tight confines of a fish's stomach. This story has it all, doesn't it? Now, we can't go through every line of the poem, although that would be awesome, but I think we both don't want this sermon to go for an hour. But there are definitely a few points we really need to land on. Also, For all you note-takers out there, just write down Psalm 42. And maybe during the the week, read through Jonah 2 and then Psalm 42 and see what you come up with. Okay, so some points we really need to land on. Chapter 2, verse 3. This is Jonah praying to God from inside the fish. You hurled me into the deep. All your waves and breakers swept over me. What? 
Back in chapter 1, verse 15, who hurled Jonah? The sailors did. But who does Jonah see as the author of his hardship? The Lord, his God. Hmm. Then, in the second half of verse 6, Jonah says, But you, Yahweh, brought my life up from the pit. Then finally, in verse 9, But I will sing with a song of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I vowed, I will make good. Salvation comes from Yahweh. Oh boy, this is deep in more ways than one. And so profound. And this right here might cause us to get ticked off at God and or break some of our categories and beliefs. Because it's clearly God who Jonah believes is the one responsible for bringing about this extreme hardship in his life. But by being placed in this desperately hopeless circumstance, Jonah can see in verse 6 it's God's way of actually saving him from himself. His stupid, self-centered decisions and the path of utter destruction he was on. Jonah is finally waking up, which brings him to the point in verse 9 where the only appropriate response to the Lord his God is to sing a song of thanksgiving for the grace and salvation he has been shown. Right, so clearly Jonah is suffering from a lack of oxygen right here. Because where is he right now? Where has he not left? He's in the stomach of a fish at the bottom of the ocean. And he's singing a song of thankfulness to God. He's probably wedged in there with bits of torn wetsuit and chunks of surfboard. He's in one of the worst possible situations you could ever find yourself in. But even in these circumstances... He can be thankful. So Jonah has clearly come to the realisation that his life circumstances no longer matter at all. The only thing that truly matters in his life is his standing before God, his relationship with God, and the salvation he has been given through the grace of God. Those stomach acids could do their thing and he could die at any second. Big deal. Yahweh, the God of heaven, the creator of the sea and the land, loves and cares for me. He now actually believes what he only said he believed. Back in chapter 1, verse 9. Now this might be a hard pillar, sorry. Now this might be a hard pill to swallow for some of us. Because we may believe that following following Yahweh is like some sort of guarantee that we'll be more healthy, wealthy and wise, that our life circumstances will actually improve. But if we actually read the Bible, we'll find the opposite is more often true, that being a follower of Yahweh is actually going to bring about more conflict in our lives, but that this conflict, and as Jonah has come to realise, his circumstances are not God's highest priority. God's primary objective may not be that we live healthy lives to 100 years of age or drive around in a Ferrari, but rather drawing him to himself, 
drawing us rather to himself and shaping us more and more into that wonderful image in which we were created to be. Okay, back to the passage. Chapter 2, verse 10. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Wow, that's unexpected. Like, I mean, I totally expected Jonah to exit the fish after three days. I just expected it would be at the opposite end. Something else that's funny? Do you want to know what the Hebrew word for vomit is? It's car. Don't you think that's funny? The noise the word makes is also the noise you make when you do the thing the word is representing. I love that. So here we are. Jonah is given new life. After three days, when we think all is lost, God steps in and takes this implement of death the fish, and reverses it and actually turns it into an implement of new life and grace. It's almost like Jonah has been born again. Hmm. Is there any other story in the Bible where after three days, when we think all is lost, God takes an implement of death, the cross, and turns it into an implement of new life and grace for not just one man, but all of humanity? We can totally see now why Jesus himself, the ultimate son of Abraham, refers to this point right here in the story of Jonah, in the gospel, the good news, both in Matthew's account in chapter 12 and in Luke's account in chapter 11. However, Jesus is the very opposite of Jonah. Jonah faces death because of his own stupid, self-centered decisions, whereas Jesus faces death because of our stupid, self-centered decisions. And he takes onto himself the consequences of our sin in order to offer us a second chance at life and bring God's salvation to all those who put their faith in him from all the nations. This is good news, pun intended, for people like you and me, isn't it? In fact, it's the best news ever that this Yahweh God, this maker of the sea and the land, shows us such love and grace that he earnestly chases after us to the very depths of our lives, to the putrid, smelly, rotten depths of our messed up decisions, to the point where our circumstances will tell us there is no hope. And he offers us not only hope, but a way forward, a new life through his son. If only we turn and start to head east. Let's close in prayer. Yahweh God, We thank you again for this powerful little story of Jonah. We pray that here at Freeway we can become more and more a people who together move towards you. As we wake up to just how much you love us, we pray our experience of you inspires us to share your love and grace, to bring your salvation to the nations. Amen.